All right. Appreciate everyone listening to this week's episode. We've got two great guests on the line this morning, Nick Pappas and Jason Hewitt over here in South Carolina. And uh, they're going to share what they're doing right now to gear and prep for this upcoming uh, deer season and a little bit of, about what they do. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a fun conversation, cover a lot of different things. And uh, I'm hoping to have more people on just like the two of them and hopefully get them back on uh, this fall uh, throughout, throughout the deer season, check in with them. Um, we've got a lot of rain lately down here in the Southeast. It has some more coming in this week and next week. So Hope everyone's out there planting food plots and uh, getting everything lined up, all the prep work and everything ready to go uh, leading up to um, the upcoming season, which is just around the corner. I mean, shoot, it's less than three months for South Carolina. And the most other states that have an early archery season, it's we're right about four months. So we are we are very, very close, which is kind of wild to think about. Um, I appreciate all the support I've received from the articles I've written in this podcast, it's been pretty damn remarkable to uh, be able to connect with various people that I've, I've never met before and people I know that have listened to this or read some articles. It's been it's been pretty cool. So I um, appreciate all the support. If you can, please like, review, and leave a rating on this podcast. It helps me to be able to get uh, good guests and content out on this format. And hopefully my plan is to ramp this podcast up and just keep the momentum rolling all the way through the end of the end of this upcoming deer season. Um, that's my goal. Uh, getting getting one episode out a week is probably not obtainable with everything I've got going on, but um, that's what I'm going to shoot for. And um, this episode is brought to you by the Coastal Empire branch of the National Deer Association, We're based out of here in the Low Country uh, in Savannah. We have an upcoming uh, fall banquet they're about to announce. It's going to be a lot of fun, have a lot of surprises, a lot of things planned, and we're going to start to roll out the announcements. But but look for that date, save that date. It's going to be the Thursday before the Georgia, Georgia Rifle main season opener, which I believe is October 13th. Um, we'll be releasing all that. And if you have any interest in um, collaborating with me on this podcast uh, in some form or fashion, let me know. Um, Maybe we can get something going. Again, thanks for listening. Appreciate it. And uh, here we go with Nick Pappas and Jason Hewitt. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Southeast Whitetail. I'm uh, Mark Haslam, and I'm very excited to have on the line today Nick Pappas and Jason Hewitt. Um, they are some familiar faces over here in South Carolina, uh, doing all kinds of property management work, consulting, and uh, I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Uh, Nick, do you want to go first? Sure. Thanks, Mark, for having us on here. Um, I'm excited to be on here and talk a little bit about wildlife and stuff. I know normally it's usually just extended to uh, who I see face-to-face, -face, so it's nice to talk to somebody else in the country about these things. Um, I guess my background is... Uh, I mean, it's not quite as extensive as you guys, but I've packed a lot in those few years that I've been been around. Um, I originally went to college Charleston. Um, I ended up leaving a baseball scholarship to pursue. Well, not a baseball scholarship, but I guess a baseball uh, contract uh, to pursue all this stuff, um, wildlife, fishing, whatever you wanted, what have you. Um, I ended up going to school at Ori Georgetown and get an associate's degree for wildlife, but 
you know, I had a little bit more involved in terms of my time and effort than most, I believe anyways, just because I left so much behind to pursue something I was super passionate about. Um, finished up with school pretty fairly quickly and ended up going straight to work for um, South Carolina DNR. I did that for a little bit. I was managing or helping to manage dove fields, duck impoundments, running some of the duck hunts, uh, helping out on our national forest. I was helping with Mike Vaughn, who used to be, or he may still be there, um, the tech in charge there at Francis Marin. And I think we were doing three of the six units, which, you know, Francis Marin is about 250,000 acres. So it's a large piece of property doing all the food plots. And from there, I left and ended up going to work for a consulting company where I was there for about four years, four and a half years. And that's, to be honest, where I got to try and test and learn and experience a lot of things that, you know, I'm able to carry into today where I'm at now, where I was in, well, I guess I moved to Beaufort and started working at Clarendon and it has been great and it's been a blessing so far. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit about my background. That's that's a pretty extensive background for packed you know, a lot. Yeah, a little bit of time. That's right. Jason, um, what about you? What are you up to? Yeah, man. Uh, thanks for having us on. I, I appreciate the opportunity here. Um, so I I grew up in Albany, Georgia. Started working on plantations back in 1995 at 16 years old and couldn't believe I was getting paid to do something that, that I loved that, uh, you know, I, I was the grunt, you know, I did mud grass and carried a weed eater most of the summer, but, uh, certainly fell in love with it. And, uh, enough so that I got a degree in biology and just made it, made it my life's mission to, to run a, a big plantation. And, uh, I did that at Clarendon for the last 10 years and, and uh, kind of checked all the boxes that I feel like a, a wildlife manager could check as far as um, quail hunting, deer hunting, turkey hunting, duck hunting, dove hunting, um, ducks. Yeah. And after, after checking all those boxes, I said, man, I'm only, I'm only 40, early forties here. I, I feel like I need to share what I've learned with, with other people. Um, we accomplished an awful lot at Clarendon while I was there. And, and, um, yeah, I, I started a company called private land management where we've got, uh, we're doing forestry work, uh, wildlife consulting and real estate sales. I've been a broker for about 10 years and, uh, yeah, it's just, it, it's a, it's this whole life ride has been a, has been a blessing and and uh it's been all goal oriented for me and uh this is this is a, a great opportunity yeah that's what it sounds like i mean that's a that's a that's a rich uh background i mean starting off at a young age um you know i um you mentioned doing some land doing your land brokerage what have you seen um with this current market going back to spring and in, in, in summer of 2020, what's a change you've seen in uh, land sales? 
<laughs> with this current market, you know, cheap money. Yeah. People are moving. I mean, you know, I'm seeing that people are moving down out of big cities, the Northeast. Out, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. They're moving down the Demand coast. Demand is at an all-time high. Yeah. Sure. You know, population on the coast, anywhere up and down the coast, you know, from North Carolina all the way down to Florida, it's, it, you know, there's more and more people coming down uh, from the Northeast. Once once they figured out they could work remotely, yeah. they kind of said, well, it seemed like they were like, why, why are we living here? We could live, you know, where it's not four feet of snow. <laughs> we're having to fight all the time. Um, and, and a good portion of those people are sportsmen, you know, and they, the demand for land, uh, you know, that two to 500 acre track within an hour of the coast, man, that is a hot commodity. It has been, um, I will say though, landowners, current landowners that already have those, those tracks are in quite the dilemma because they're faced with record high prices. Um, you know, and do they, do they tap out? But the problem is a lot of them don't want to just sell their property and not have their own place. They would love to sell their property and have a bigger place for all the money that they are going to make on their place, but they can't replace it. Yeah. You know, yeah. The, the amount of inventory that's out there is just, it's minimal. And it, it's, it's quite the dilemma. I just had the same conversation last night with the landowner that um, owns a, a beautiful track. And you know, he's like, I, I don't need to sell it, but if I could get my price for it, I would. The problem is where would I go? Because right, yeah. I'm, I, I, I've got to have a place. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and uh, yeah, he's like, I just can't imagine having to live in the city all the time and not, not have a, an escape. So, yeah. I, that's, that's a, a very similar situation across the board with a lot of res, with a lot of uh, real estate, like, you know, residential people want to sell right now, at, you know, at all time high, but then where are they going to go? So um, we bought our farm back in 2006 and we're in Savannah. And so one of the reasons why we ended up where we are about two hours North of Savannah um, was, you know, it was a good sweet spot. You know, it, you know, it, it, you know, the further you got away from the coast, the, the price per acre went down and then it picked back up when it was getting closer to like, you know, Aiken or Columbia. Are, are you seeing those gaps start to kind of fill in more where um, because, you know, money's cheap and people are buying that that some of those you know, gaps where it's a little bit further away from major cities are starting to kind of the, the prices are going up. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, we sold a track. We closed in uh, January in Bamberg County, uh, you know, 298 acre parcel that um, didn't have much of a house. It had an old 1950s block house with asbestos siding on parts of it. Yeah. Um, that needed a ton of work. And, you know, we were still able to get over 3,400 an acre for it. And, you know, it's wow. kind of Bamberg County in South Carolina. If you're not familiar, it's, it's kind of an hour and a half from everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, and most people, for, for whatever reason, you know, once you start getting over an hour, it, it starts to, starts to get a little more difficult for them to get there on the weekend and, 
you know, they're, they're spending more time on the road than they really want to. Yeah. 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 You're right. We, we are very, we are very close to Bamberg and, um, I know what you mean. It, it, it's kind of middle of nowhere, but it's that area is excellent, excellent hunting. Um, but you're right. I exactly. mean, you know, yeah, we, absolutely. we are two hours, uh, you know, from where we live. So it's kind of like if we were an hour away, I would be at my property all the time. I would squeeze in like so many more hunts, yeah. but, but then I'd be putting so much more pressure on my property. And then, you know, being two hours away, it's kind of like when you're gone, you're gone. And, um, you know, you kind of leave right. things at home. So in a way I like that we're that distance away that way. I, you know, if something came up, I, I, don't, I wouldn't rush home necessarily, but, um, you know, it's just, it, it's all about what someone wants, but, you know, when you have that kind of distance and I, and I know, you know, this, that's, what's key about having a, a, a place to shower and sleep. Um, Cause we didn't have a house in our property for a while, for about six years. And so that, that was a, a game changer for us as far as having a building a house, you know, so we could, you know, not have to stay in uh, one of those local motels. So, um, mm -hmm. so, so what are y'all right now? What are y'all working on right now? Uh, food plots, warm season food plots. What's on the agenda right now? Well, I, I mean, I can, I guess I'll go ahead and give an update. I kind of switched a little bit over from a little bit more, uh, less wildlife. And I kind of, I took a role more into the farming world, which has been a great, I guess, carryover um, that I could put back into wildlife for sure. You know, they go hand in hand, you know, more like soil health and um, overall health of everything. Um, but, you know, recently, I mean, the big problem that we've had so far this spring has been the lack of rain. You know, we hadn't been able to do a whole lot of mowing. You don't want to stress the clover or anything else out too much. You can't spray that much, or especially now with it being almost 100 this week, try not to waste too much chemical. You know, for me, I've been full, I've been full blast, you know, getting corn in sorghum sunflowers and just trying to keep up and monitor everything with the lack of rain and while also not wasting too much chemical or money on anything and just trying to be as as well off with it as I can be at least for for now hopefully yeah. this rain this weekend will come through yeah I, yeah I'm hoping we get some rain they were calling for rain last Saturday and we didn't get any we got a little bit Friday night but not much you brought up chemicals and that, I mean, this is definitely a hot topic. Um, everything related to farming food plots has shot up tremendously skyrocketed this year. Chemicals, Absolutely. fertilizer, seed. Are y'all doing or suggesting or seeing any kind of tactics to try to curb some of the expense or potentially wasting anything, uh, you know, seed, fertilizer, chemicals are, are y'all making any kind of adjustments uh this year based on you know budgeting and cost uh i mean definitely input costs we were just looking at it the other day i mean input especially for the farming world um a lot of them have gone up 100 to 500 percent in some cases I mean, I know, I know you probably, since most managers and, and people do anything wildlife, Roundup's a lot of people's best friends, 
you know, that's a prime example. Um, you know, I mean, it's gone up three times from what it used to be just almost a year ago. I mean, I hadn't, I hadn't bought, you know, singular, you know, two and a half gallons from like a tractor supply, you know, that like the generic one. I, but I want to say the last time I looked, it was dang near $150 versus, you know, 45, 50 bucks from years past. Um, you know, I mean, we, we've definitely been trying to hold back on Roundup or even any other chemicals or, you know, even diesel costs. If we don't absolutely have to do something, yeah. uh, we try not to and we try and push it back as much as we can, you know, as long as it's feasible. Yeah, that makes sense. Mark, I've, I've been pushing natives uh, for a while and, and native native plant species are how we were able to get where we where we did at Clarendon um, and you know they're the plots that that are in natives right now um, are far outperforming a lot of the food plots that have been planted in the last month yep I can um, confirm a lot of the native yeah a lot of the native plants you know they're they get established down here on the coast I mean it's January and February, ragweed sprouting, and um, you know that that stuff is well is well rooted. It's got got plenty of uh, resilience to to droughty type conditions like we're having right now. Yeah, and you know, it's not something you have to fertilize. You don't necessarily have to lime. Um, you know, and in a lot of cases, the natives that that we're pushing are um, you know, mid twenties and protein content. I mean, so it just, it makes all the sense in the world to focus on managing for good native habitat, um, in, in conditions like these. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense, Jason. What, um, can you share a little bit about what y'all, uh, specifically do to promote and to, you know, establish and maintain the, the native plant species? Yeah, there's quite a few things. Um, you know, fall fire promotes Forbes uh, in a lot of cases. Um, it's a little harder on, on the hardwood component than a, than a late dormant season or early, early growing season fire. Um, uh, fall disking, you know, disking between October fifteenth and February fifteenth can really can really benefit uh, single species or, a or only a couple of species. There's ragweed and partridge pea are known to respond really well to disturbance at that time of year. Um, we're trying to on some of our our timber clients' properties. We're we're doing our best to hard really hard to direct log crews that's on timing but we're we're doing our best to get log crews in during that same time period because just again disturbance at that time of year between october 15th and february 15th even in woods doesn't have to be in a field necessarily and promote those same those same native forbs um yeah, getting basically getting rid of, of things that are that are not forage for deer or rabbits or quail, um, 
you know, the, I've been I've been traveling a good bit in the last several months since leaving Clarendon and and starting private land management, and uh, I see, you know, most places just don't have the forb component that's necessary for quail or for deer or for turkeys. Yeah, um, that that seems to be the missing component on most places. Um, I hate to generalize like that, but um, a lot of people like to burn, you know, right after quail season's over or, or right after deer season is over and fire at that time of year promotes more shrubs and grasses than, than forbs. Um, in a lot of cases, especially those fires in February and March, any forbs that have sprouted, they're burning them. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're killing them. So, um, I don't think a lot of folks realize you know, that that um, how early those plants get established. Um, we spend a lot of time in the woods and and spend a lot of time looking for things just like this and experimenting. And that's those those are the the key the key things that that we're doing to burn late summer, early fall. Yeah, we start starting in late August. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, here, 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 all the time. It's too green in August. It's you know the humidity is too high. Um, you know, there's there's a million excuses, but um, you know, some sometimes you can't get it to burn. But yeah. you also have to be ready when the weather's right because it will get right during that time of year. That August to October window, the weather will get right. Uh, but a lot of times there's only a handful of days where it is right. And you just have to be willing. Jason, you there? Uh-oh. Yeah. Yep. Sorry about that. Oh, no worries. Yeah, I um, we lost you for a second. I, I that's something that I've been wanting to try for years. We typically burn in the dormant season and going into early summer, but I'd like to take a little, you know, test area and you know ease into it pretty slowly. But that's a goal of mine sure. to burn some early fall, late summer, and uh, you know monitor the results so jason i know you need to uh roll on um can you tell us where people can find you your uh private land management where 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 people people can find you and contact you sure privatelandmanagement.com uh at private land management on instagram um yeah, those are the those are probably the best two places. We're also private land management on Facebook. Well, I appreciate you coming on. I I'd like to like to get get you back on at some point. Uh, talk some more about some of this stuff because it's uh, you know I think that I think there's a lot of things people can do. Um, like you said, just beyond food plots. I mean, I, you know, we I, we plant food plots, but it, it's to me, it's um, that's just one. You know that's just something else you do for diversity um 
but I, I, right. we've seen a major it's uptick. A, a right. Yeah. Yeah. It is. So, well, Jason, I appreciate your time and um, I'd like to get you back on and talk some more about this stuff. Yeah, let's do it. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. Thank you. All right, Nick, you there? I'm here. Well, I know Jason needed to roll on. He's got a probably a busy day. Um, so you were talking about, we talked a little bit earlier about food plots. Can you, can you tell me what's your, you said you're planting a lot of corn and sunflowers. What, um, what are you planting as far as warm season food plots? Well, as of right now, I know I'm, I'm helping out when I can. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm more so, like, especially now in the role I'm in, I'm, um, into the farming at the moment, but I can only, I can speak on the past food plots that I've done throughout the years. And also I'm helping right now with a manager now. And so far, um, really what we've got is like Jason said, we've got a bunch of, um, natives. We've got a bunch of, of clover fields and, you know, for the most part, a lot of them are mixed with crimson, ladino, and red red clovers and stuff. And it was pretty cool during turkey season to see all the crimson bloom. And then right after the crimson started to go out, the ladino started coming in, and it was pretty cool to see. And it was also interesting to see, uh, especially where we are in Beaufort, uh, you can definitely tell, I guess, sandy soils and, and sandy terrain uh show off the deficiencies a lot quicker um you can definitely tell that the crimson clover does extremely well in the drier sandy areas and the ladino definitely likes the wetter and it was just cool to see because they were planted all in the same field but the ladino just did so much better in the shade and the wet and the crimson just did it did way better than any of the ladino did in the drier soils um Really, we haven't done a whole lot so far. I mean, mainly, like I said, the issue earlier has just been the lack of rain. We've been trying not to distress anything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, between mowing, you know, we've mowed maybe maybe twice so far. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was, you know, while we were getting some rain. But I don't know. We've just kind of been sitting back and, and, and just waiting on some rain to, you know, build itself back up. And that way that the clover isn't too stressed. Yeah, that's right. It but looks like we have, I mean, at least they're calling for some rain. I think maybe starting, I don't know, this weekend or maybe early next week for a while. So hopefully um, we've done a little bit of planning so far, but we're just kind of sitting tight until we get some more more uh, moisture. Um, what do y'all – I saw do, that you were uh, planting sun hemp and stuff this past week or the week before that. Yeah, I, I I got some I got some soybeans in the ground a little bit a couple of weeks ago when we had some rain, and then I went with a um, went with a mix. Um, I buy a, a lot of our seed from uh, Watermaker in St. Matthews, South Carolina. Oh yeah, and so he's oh, yeah. got a um, he he's got you know we plant a lot of soybeans, but we try to we try to concentrate the soybeans in one general area to kind of create like a, you know, a nice hub to kind of swamp them all at once in some larger fields that are pretty close together. And then um, going with some mixes because, you know, I mean, and that's one of the things I want to talk about is deer densities. And it's just, uh, 
you know, so much of our food plot uh, survival and, you know, how it forms or if even if it gets established to become browse tolerant depends on what our farmers plant. So, I mean, they, you know, in our area, they plant a lot of cotton, um, corn and peanuts. There, there are some soybeans, but, you know, most of the farmers aren't planting soybeans unless they have irrigation just for the deer browse. So my, my point being is that if we have a lot of cotton around us, um, then the deer are going to hammer our food plots so much more as opposed to corn or peanuts. So, um, yeah, it's, um, I can, I say, I can, I can for sure speak on that. Uh, Clarendon is a little bit different, um, in terms of, I guess, I mean, they've got two separate properties, one's up in Allendale and the other one's down here in Beaufort. But I think the interesting thing is, is they're both starkly different. The Beaufort property has, um, has basically no ag other than what we do on in-house, um, and then Allendale's got some farming, but not that much. Um, but I know I can definitely speak on my past experience. Over the last four years, I was managing uh, a plantation up at King Street. And it had ag pretty much all the way around. And it was ag country. I mean, it was everything you could imagine ag to be. And basically, it was blocked out more into, you know, if there were any block of woods, uh, we, it was us for the most part and years that they had planted soybeans, you know, we were able to plant sunflowers even without an electric fence, you know, most years just because the soybeans were doing so well. And there were so many, there was so much tonnage, um, of the beans hanging around that we really didn't have to worry about it. Now, now here's a, an interesting, you know, uh, I guess visual that I noticed is every year that they had planted corn, it was like 50-50 if we got eaten out of our spring plots or summer plots. And the years that we got eaten out were the years that it was wet. And I assume, I assume that was just because the deer were not eating the corn. Like I'm noticing that this year on our corn here. And I noticed that on a few of our duck impoundments that we used to have on the plantation there in King Street on dry years, I think the corn that we had planted was about the only thing around that was holding moisture. And I think the deer were going over there and getting the moisture out of corn, but they would eat us out of the house. They'd eat the stalks, they'd eat the leaves, they'd eat everything. And if we didn't have any rain, we'd lose our corn if we didn't have a fence or an electric fence or anything like that. Yeah, but but a hundred percent. If if you know, it really depends. Especially if you're in ag country, if you've got beans versus cotton, you know. I guess you. I guess that's when it comes in with having a co-op or, you know, making that relationship with the farmer. You know, to find out what they're planning on a year-to-year -year basis, and you can plan your plots accordingly that way. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a challenge because you know we you know we really hammer the does and, you know, try to take as many, uh, you know, antlerless deer as we can, as far as trying to, of course, strive to a good buck to doe ratio, but, you know, everyone around us, our neighbors aren't, aren't really doing, doing the same thing. So it's, it's certainly difficult. Do you see, um, do you see much, uh, uh, change with depredation, you know, during the summer with the farmers, have you yeah. noticed a year-to-year -year change with that? 
you know, we saw the past two years, um, there's been a lot of depredation and our, our farmer on our property lost, he lost a lot of acreage in cotton uh, a year ago. And it is the little, you know, cotton sprouts were coming up and uh, they were young enough to where he, 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 he had not been, he wasn't able to put that application on. I'm not sure what it is to make cotton taste better uh, for the deer. Um, and the deer went in there and just sniffed off the little cotton sprouts. Um, and and he, he, he lost a ton of acreage. Um, yeah, so we... We see that. I mean, a lot of our farmers get depredation permits so they can shoot at night uh, throughout the summer. Um, so yeah, it, it's uh, yeah, that's something that I that I've tried to get a grasp on. I mean, I, I've had conversations with our local Clemson Ag Extension Center about deer densities, and uh, I mean, as far as what's a realistic you know, deer per square mile in our area of South Carolina, you know, low country going up mm -hmm. to mid state. And it's one of those things where, you know, most of the stuff that you read in publications will say the average is like 25 to 40 deer per square mile. Well, that in my opinion is grossly undercalculated for our areas. I mean, there's, there's no way based on what we're shooting. I definitely agree on Agland. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, and I don't, I'm almost afraid to like, you know, give my opinion as far as what the deer per square mile is. Cause I think a lot of people would think I'm crazy, but you know, I based on how many deer we're, we're killing every year. And then how many deer that we're continuing to see on, on hunter observations every single year, we're only seeing more and more deer and we're killing, you know, I mean, we're, we're, we've been shooting 60 or around 60 does a year for a number of years now, and we're only seeing more and more deer every year. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm sure that's a testament to all your management stuff too. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I guess in one way, and then I you mean, got, how, how good do you want it? <laughs> and then you got some neighbors, you know, that, uh, you know, I mean, some people, I mean, yeah, you know, everyone's not, you know, um, everyone's not, you know, out to some people just kind of recreational hunt and they, you know, shooting what they want to want to put in the freezer. What do y'all do you have a lot of challenges as far as, you know, keeping deer out of food plots before they get established so they don't, uh, you know, kill the plant early? And what do you do as far as tactics, if any, to keep the deer you well, know, out until they get established? A lot of years. Um, especially if we're doing fall food plots, you know, a lot of years, especially if we're going to try and plant a perennial, like some sort of clover, uh, I don't know, like a, I guess a ladino versus, you know, I don't know, let's just, let's just say theoretically you're planting, you know, like a, let's see, an arrow leaf, which is, I guess it's more of a biennial or something, but, um, you know, most years, if you're going to do a perennial, you're always trying to do like an annual with it. Because, you know, most perennials are slow to establish, you know, especially a perennial clover. That first year, a lot of times they're establishing their root base. Um, and, you know, that first year, especially if you want to hunt over it, if you have like a fast growing, uh, super palatable annual that you can plant with it, it gives time for that perennial to get its food, its root base up 
without having too much browse pressure. And by the springtime, you know, especially especially if you get some good rains, that perennial will be established enough, it'll start growing and your annual will be starting to die out. Um, that's kind of more so the way that, you know, at least I used to do things a lot. Most, I didn't really plant monocultural food plots. They're almost always had multiple species. It was very diverse. You know, I like to, I always like to put a perennial and annual and some sort of like cover crop in it. So I guess it would be like a clover and oat and like a winter wheat. And the wheat would be something that deer could walk through. And especially once it grew up and got tall, the oats would be something they could eat right away. And then the, the clover is just kind of sitting there that first year, you know, establishing itself. And by springtime, the clover should be good. And uh, I mean, it worked for us. I know everywhere is different. Everywhere has different, you know, goals uh and also different soil types that allow other stuff to grow better than others so it's really uh you know it's kind of a user preference at that point but that's just the way we used to do things and it's kind of the way they're doing now especially what jason was talking about earlier with natives you know we've noticed a a great i guess response in terms of natives and clover like we've been doing crimson and and planting ragweed if if it's not already established in the soil and you know, the, the ragweed is resistant to deer pressure. I mean, it's a native and it gives it time for, it gives the clover time to grow. It's been a pretty cool little plot and especially being able to experiment over the years with all these different concoctions. Yes, yeah, so I, I, that's interesting that you brought that up, that, that you're planting natives. I, that, that's something that I've, I've looked at, um, I've been wanting to do, I, I just hadn't got to it. So when you plant natives, are you, can you tell me a little bit about like the setup? I mean, are, are you choosing some smaller like kill plots or are you putting them on like, you know, roads or what, what, what exactly are you doing with them? Well, for the most part, they're getting put in uh, big food plots. It, at the end of the day, I guess it ends up coming down to how much you want to spend because you, I'm sure, you know, the natives are not, for the most part, they're not cheap. So you have to be, real tactical on which food plots you're going to put them on um but when we do i mean a lot of times yet they end up getting planted with like a, a brilliant colts packer almost like a ferminator deal yeah um you know it's a small seed and it needs a firm seed bed to get established and it may take a little bit to get going um but you know a lot of times we don't do them on the road because if you're going to spend the money to do it um you want to be able to hunt over it and that's, you know, that's only specific to, I guess, down where we are, because it, I guess, being so close to the coast, you know, at one point, the whole coast was underwater. So if I had to guess, I mean, I know, you know, different pockets are different than others, but at least where we're at here in Beaufort, um, the soil does not have a whole lot of, um, it doesn't have very deep seed bank into it. So, you know, any kind of help we could give it, the better. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. So, uh, what what do y'all do for um, cool season food plots in the fall? Did y'all y'all plant some or uh, just kind of maintain perennials? Yeah. Or? Uh, well, yeah, kind of a mixture of both. It's a lot of perennial plots. Clover is a big one, but most of the time, uh, I guess I can speak on on two fronts of where I've been for the last few years, and then also here at Clarendon 
which I can only say so much because uh, the manager there, he's kind of the one kind of making up all the plans for everything for right now, but uh, which he does a fantastic job. But I think for the most part, they're doing uh, like a winter wheat and oat mixture, um, you know, which I hadn't had much, much trouble with, but they have ryegrass down there. And I never had much experience with having issues with it, but dang if that ryegrass, which it's in some of the roads and the ryegrass really gets into some of the food plots pretty bad, but um, but that's here at Clarendon. In the last few years, um, I've done a lot of mixtures, at least getting to experiment at the plantation there in King Street. I know I've done a lot of uh, like annual clovers and oat mixtures. I've done uh, wheat and oats. Oats kind of seems to be our staple that yeah. I've used a lot of it, at least, you know, back up in King Street, that seemed to be, you know, like a year round or not year round, but at least in the fall deer and deer season, you know, deer used it pretty much the entire season. Um, but, you know, one of the, which this is kind of controversial too, but the whole uh, brassica, you know, frosting, does it get the sugars in it and how palatable is it actually in the low country? How palatable is it in South Carolina? I know people have different experiences, but at least where we've been for the last few years, I know that brassicas like radishes and turnips and stuff, the deer tend to not really eat it very much. To be honest with you, it was, it seems to be more of like a, a pretty plot seed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, I know I've mixed that with Japanese millet and also mixed it with uh, oats as well, but I haven't drilled the oats. I've just broadcasted it with the wheat. And those turned out to be really pretty plots. And I've, I've been happy with it because the the Japanese millet, depending on how heavy you plant it, you know, it's a pretty tall plant, especially once it grows up. Um, sometimes the deer will eat the heads off of it, um, especially when it's younger, before it heads out, it'll eat the grasses, but um, the oats is kind of the, the the main the main deal there and the turnips he'll eat it which I, I used to plant turnips and radishes a lot and I noticed that the deer started eating the radishes way more than the turnips but like I said this is you know at least my experience in King Street I'm sure different people have different experiences with brassicas but yeah yeah we we've had some very good success coming in and uh we've been planting a lot of uh naked oats um in the winter yep. you know fall <laughs> in the in in this this past year we um um went and in in uh broadcasted and also drilled in uh oats in all the ag fields so we we lease out the the ag fields to a farmer and then uh we talked to him and we uh planted oats in in all the ag fields and all of our food plots and that just was tremendous for the turkeys um i was gonna say i've noticed i've no, I, more so almost like the oats more for spring turkey time yeah than, than deer almost because the turkeys love the seeds once it heads out yeah i mean it's just i mean i mean even we have sprayed and killed off uh, most of the oats already so we could plant you know uh warm season food plots but I, the birds are still in there. I mean, if you drive up to one of those fields, it is just loaded with all kinds of birds in there. And then if you start walking through it, it's like a sea of grasshoppers that are just flying oh, everywhere. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, that, that, I mean, 
I saw a big uptick in our turkey population uh, in one of our properties this spring with all the naked oats. And naked oats, I mean, we were, there's a guy locally that you can buy it for anywhere from five to nine dollars a bushel. I mean, it's not expensive. And um, I mean, it, 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 it did wonders. I thought for turkey population, what, now that I brought up turkeys, what, what are y'all, are y'all doing anything specific? I mean, are y'all like for us, for instance, we've got turkeys, you know, we, we've been working on the population really intensely the past five years, try to try to try to build them up. Do y'all have some good numbers? Are y'all doing some things to try to increase the population? Oh, the turkey numbers are pretty darn strong, to be honest with you. But uh, we do year-round trapping here at Clarendon, um, so I'm I know that that has definitely got an impact on the turkey numbers here. I mean, is anywhere the less predators, yeah. the better, in terms of nest predation. Um, as far like food plots and stuff go, I mean, like I said, most of the food plots that are around are perennial, and you know, every fall. I mean, a lot of these plots have got some sort of cereal grain in it, whether it's it's wheat or oats or cereal rye or something like that. So, um, I mean, other than that, I mean, there there is a, a ton of uh, burning here and it's such a large amount of acres. There's always something that's been, you know, fairly recently burned. There's always something that's coming up. There's always fresh stuff that's coming up, which also impacts the deer as well. But the turkeys are benefiting from because there's almost anywhere they want to go roost there's some block within walking distance that's that's got fresh forbs or fresh grasses or something coming up for them yeah yeah that's i mean that's the way to do it really just kind of you know do everything you can kind of swamp them with everything you know like you said um predator predator trapping and habitat work and food plots and um mm-hmm. that's really i i think a good a good strategy. Um, it y'all's uh, land. Do y'all are y'all it, as far as the doe management? Um, is it something where it's pretty intense? Where, like, for instance, for us, we're we have a certain target that we're trying to shoot, and it's really we're trying to shoot around sixty does per year, and um, you know after probably 10 or so years of doing it, we realized, I mean, it's just, it's work. And, uh, you, you know, for us, we, we've got to start early on it, right. When doe tags come out and, um, mm-hmm. just, you know, try to hit them hard early and then maybe let them, you know, maybe back off a little bit during the rut. Do, do y'all have intense doe numbers? Do y'all have strategies? What y'all are trying to do to, you know, thin them out or, what um what do y'all well, do Clarendon for has I say Clarendon has got doe hunts specific doe hunts I think there's let's see I want to say there's either six or eight specific doe hunts where yeah um you know all the people that work here we invite I think three to four people per employee that's here I believe don't quote me on all the numbers that's just what I believe it is um because I've been on a bunch of them and, you know, it's nothing to have, you know, each hunt to kill 30 or 40 does. I mean, it's nothing to do that. Um, it's definitely pretty intense. Um, 
Uh, we get a bunch of tags. I'd have to talk with with the wildlife manager that's over here at Clarendon just to you know give you exact numbers on how many doe tags we get. But it's definitely yeah. intense. I know there's constant doe management. There's constant you know buck management in terms of calls and you know bucks that are that are approved to, to kill. Whether that's with the client that comes in or you know, if one of us are out trying to, you know, kill some does and, you know, just happen to see one, um, it's definitely pretty intense. I noticed, I say, speaking on where I was the last few years, it was an interesting uh, sequence of events with the does that were there, just because the, the farmers impacted us so much in turn, whether they were actually shooting does during the summer or they weren't. I know my first year that I was there, we had more deer than you could shake a stick at. I mean, it was, it was, we were so heavily run, overrun with deer. It was definitely work, like you said, trying to kill them. And we killed a good many. I mean, I know myself, I think I killed like 25, which doesn't sound like much, but you know, if you include the owner and his friends and all that, you know, that ended up being a lot of deer for me. And which our doe numbers, I think we were trying to kill 50, which it was only like a 700 acre track. And we, we, we got pretty darn close to it. I think we got like 38 or something. And I guess, I guess the farmers went at them the following year. And my second year there, it was, it was sad how few deer that were there. I think, I think the depredation tags and stuff, I think that really put a hurt on them. And after that, we had to back off on our, on our doe harvest. We went from 40 our first year to the second year, which we obviously, you know, in, in the moment, you don't know exactly how many deer. We just assumed that we had, you know, close to 30 or 40, we were going to have to take the second year. And once we found out we had almost no deer, we ended up only killing, I think seven does the following year. And it wasn't that there was that few deer. It's just, you know, you didn't feel comfortable killing that many. You know, a lot of our food plots, they weren't eaten down. We had our exclusion cages. They weren't really eaten down. You know, talking to the people that were local, they weren't seeing as many deer either. So we just felt like, you know, we shouldn't harvest near as many. And then towards the last year I was there, they were kind of starting to come back a little bit. But as far as I know, I don't think any sort of disease came through. I know I've been, I was trapping out there. So the coyotes numbers hadn't gotten up and they really hadn't been any kind of outlying factor that I could figure other than, you know, maybe the farmers got eaten out the year before and they weren't going to have it. And, you know, they just went at them that year, but I don't know that. That's kind of my experience with it. I know your doe harvest numbers and intensity always has to change every year. Um, along with, you know, trail cam surveys and, you know, whatever you see on when it, while you're out there and stuff, you just have to be smart about it. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's something that's, you know, constantly changing and you got to monitor and that's, that's why it's so important to, uh, you know, keep a good hunter observation log and, you know, run, run your statistics in the season and, you know, monitor what's going on. Um, so our season opens up pretty quick, pretty quickly in about three months from now. What, what do you, do you have any goals for this, for this upcoming um, deer season? Any plans? You, you got any bucks that have survived from last year that you're going to try to get after? Uh, honestly, no, I had a, I had a really good year last year. 
And of course, I'd like to shoot, you know, one or two nice bucks this year. But I think my goal this year is I'd love to kill a nice buck on public land with my bow. And, you know, I'm sure you know how that would probably be between public land and South Carolina and Georgia. That's a pretty tall task. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm, that's kind of my goal this year. Last year, I, I had a real good year. I killed a couple of nice bucks on friends properties and family land and it was uh i don't know it was a it was it was probably one of the coolest weeks that i've ever had deer hunting i think i killed like four four really nice bucks in a matter of four days and i i don't know when that'll ever happen again it just seemed like it didn't matter where i sat i was going to see a nice deer yeah i don't know it was it was definitely a, a really cool year that's why i was gonna that's why i say like i'm I don't have super tall expectations for this year just because I'm still kind of riding a high from last year, but. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, that's kind of, that's, that's will be hard to top that, but that's a testament to uh, your experience and, you know, uh, you know, getting out there and, you know, uh, hunting and um, getting well, it done. For a little bit, me and you were going back and forth. I remember that. <laughs> yeah you like know, every time that i would see one you would have one <laughs> yeah just you know sometimes it's like when you when you have a target buck or two and you're trying to pursue it's like i sometimes at least for me i would get too consumed with that one particular buck and it, it just i you know it's it, it's uh at least for me it's like you know, I'll get some bucks on trail cameras, but then of course more will float on the property that maybe we're off the property during early season. And it's just, I, sometimes you just got, at least for me, I try not to be too intense about it and just go out and have fun because it's going to happen. I mean, you know, you're, if you hunt smart and you, you know, uh, do it the right way and make the best decisions as far as where and how you hunt, it's going to come together, but it's just, you just got to. Absolutely you know, just don't really got to be patient. Yeah. It, it I, I think sometimes people overthink things and they try to, you know, track down a buck's bed and this and that. And it's like, you know, you just don't overthink it. Sometimes you don't even have to be all that aggressive. I mean, I know when people hunt public mm -hmm. land, it's different because there's more pressure and sometimes you need to be aggressive on public land for different reasons. <laughs> Um, but you know, other times, sometimes you don't have to be so aggressive and just, you know, let things develop. Um, absolutely. Especially if you're hunting, uh, if you're hunting more bedding areas than you are, uh, feeding areas, yeah. at least in my, my experience, I've had way more luck catching deer coming or going to bedding areas and coming back from bedding areas, you know, just kind of that transition versus hunting food plots. And, um, you know, at least, like I said, this is all my anecdotal experiences. It seemed like the bucks definitely used your food plots, which is where most people put their trail cameras. And that's, you know, what entail most people end up hunting food plots. When instead, I know I used to switch over my trail cams. I'd put one on the food plot plus one on the trails that are going right from the bedding. Yeah. And a lot of times you could, you could get the bucks in the field at night but during the daylight, go right at the edge of the bedding. So, you know, I, I don't know. Most people like to hunt food plots and they're big into the food plot. There's nothing's wrong with it. You know, nice deer get killed over food plots every year. But 
at least, you know, I've had much more luck and much more success hunting right next to the bread, the, the bedding versus hunting on food plots. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think you're hundred percent spot on. I mean, I, I, I personally hunt food plots usually like very early when like doe tags come out to take some does, but then, you know, after that, it's like, I'll, I'll utilize the food plots, but I won't hunt on them. And like you said, I'll just kind of back all the way up to like a bedding site, maybe a pine thicket. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, assuming where they're going to be feeding all night, you know, they're going to slip back in at first light, you know, as far as bucks. Um, that's been, a, I think, a very good, a very good strategy for me. So, uh, Nick, I know you got to roll on. What do you, what do you have on tap for today as far as work? Well, I was going to say, I've actually got a few more minutes. It, it's up to you. Um, yeah. But I mean, as, as of right now, I mean, I'm, I'm spraying right now today and the wind's supposed to be laid down for a bit. So that's why, you know, I was just trying to make sure the wind ain't going to get up, which we're good probably for a little while longer. Well, good. I, okay. So I know we talked a little bit earlier um, before we started rolling recording about um, um, dog hunting. Uh, in the south and that's something where you know i mean you know how a lot of things we a lot of things that i you know we that we do down the southeast doesn't really translate and people can't really relate to it out of the southeast i mean a minute ago we were talking about uh you know you know intense uh doe harvest and stuff like that and i mean people you know people midwest i mean i don't really you know, translate. And so anyways, you know, dog hunting is, is very much uh, a deep, you know, cultural ingrained uh, hunting practice that goes back. I mean, I, I guess yeah. since the early settlers, I don't really know exactly when it started. Um, and I know you have some experience with it and um, we've got some dog hunters next to us and I've tried to work with them. And it's um, it, at least for me, it can certainly be a challenge Um because in South Carolina, there, I mean, there's basically very little to no laws and regulations as far as the size of the property and then how many dogs you can release on that property. Mm -hmm. Do y'all have any, any, yeah, any kind of challenges that y'all, you know, work with? Because, you know, in, and for people that maybe don't quite understand, I'll just tee it up just briefly is that, you know, you know, Nick and I, and like a lot of other people, you know, we spent a lot of, you know, time and blood, sweat and tears, you know, uh, doing habitat work, food plots and burning and disking all this year round stuff. And then, you know, dog hunting's legal. So there's nothing wrong with it, but you know, it's uh, leash laws don't apply. So, I mean, you could be, you could spend a whole, you know, year prepping for the rut and then, there's some dogs that run on your property and uh, it's legal. I mean, there's no leash laws and you're, and you're hunting down the rut and you've got a pack of dogs coming through chasing deer and they can just absolutely kill that hunt and just, you know, be frustrating to say the least. Oh, absolutely. I know I've had the last couple of years that I've been up where I've been in King street. Uh, it was a, yearly deal it was a, a yearly issue that we dealt with it was a, a yearly thing that I thought about especially in the management plan and management idea things there 
was to make the dog hunters as least impactful on us as they could be while still also having a good relationship as well as making you know both sides successful um and our prerequisite was saying that i have no problem with the dog hunting whatsoever as long as it's done ethically for what it can be as well as legally you know i have no issue with it i've done it um i've had fun doing it um but i know there's just like everything else there's a few bad apples in the bunch and unfortunately i've hunted with a group before or a couple groups that have <laughs> to say the least uh not very legal uh aspects to their the ways of doing it and i you know got a bad taste from that as well as a plantation that i was on we had dog hunters all the way around us that weren't if it wasn't a farmer on one side we had dog hunters on the other and we were about the only you know management farm in the general vicinity that did not dog so you know that being said we'd have one of the dog clubs on one side which i had a great relationship with they were awesome i loved them and i still hang out with them to this day they're great people they do it the right way in my opinion they do it the right way and you know never had any issues and if they ever had a dog somehow get on us by chasing a deer because it you know just as well as i do it, you know we put a lot of blood blood sweat and tears into things but at the end of the day the deer is still public property at the end of the day you know you or i don't own that specific deer as much as we want to believe that you know nasty eight point that we've got is all our deer that we've been watching all year long but um yeah i mean we've had issues with it we've had some clubs as well that you know don't give a rats behind you know about a property how much money is being spent on making this property as good as it can be and what i've definitely noticed is once a, a dog hunting club that's not exactly the most legal or ethical they will you know set dogs right on the edge of the property line and you know accidentally let the dogs run through our our blocks and stuff and it's just been frustrating and you know a lot of times a bit the big dog clubs like that you know i don't know it's hard it's hard to manage because there's only so few dnr agents around and i don't know it i don't know it's, it's, it's a tough topic like i said i have no problem with it as long as it's done right but it definitely impacts the deer hunting especially whenever a specific owner you know or even if you for example you know, it's not that you don't, that you disagree with it. It's just that you want to steal hunt and that's the way that you want to hunt. I don't see any reason why, you know, other people can't respect what you want to do on your property, but I don't know, it's, it's a tough topic. Yeah. Especially it, with the cultural, how, how deep it runs in the South. Yeah, it certainly is. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it can, uh, it, it can be tough to work with, especially, you know, if, if someone is doing everything they can uh, on the property is to for habitat work. And then also if they still hunt and then if, if their neighbor runs dogs and um, there can be some challenges, but it's, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, you can either butt heads and, and then it's just going to be, you know, hostile and, and, and right. And then it's, or, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, both parties have to, you know, socialize together, but, you know, sometimes it's just like you try to work together because if then, the, 
at the end of the day, there's probably going to be a time where they, you know, they wound a deer it goes in your property and they want to trail it and vice versa. There might be times when, you know, oh, you, absolutely. you know, when you hit, you know, hit a buck and it goes in their property and it's like, you know, if you, it's, you know, I'm not saying you, you've got to just, you know, be a doormat for them, but at the same time, it's, you know, there's, I mean, you know, this, I mean, there's some major benefits to having a good worker relationship where you don't have to be buddies with somebody, but have a, have their phone number and, if you need to trail a deer, if they need to trail a deer, you pick up the phone and I can you know. tell you, I can tell you multiple times where uh, you know, either I couldn't find a doe that I shot with my bow, or uh the owner shot a nice buck and you know he wasn't exactly sure on how well he hit it. You know, yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've lost count where I've called, you know, the next door neighbors who dog hunt who've got some good blood trailing dogs where I've had them come over and you know, come find the deer force. And it's absolutely no problem at all. It's just like you said, having the working relationship. Like I say, you don't have to be friends, but as long as you're cordial towards each other, understand what the goals are, you know, and have some sort of mutual respect that, you know, you're not going to impede on either either one of uh, each other's hunts, nor what kind of hunting they want to do, then it should be all right. I think it's just the people that, you know, have no regard for anybody's, you know, property, or their goals or they just don't care they know they won't get called or they they know there aren't going to be any repercussions or anything like that and then i know a lot of times especially in south carolina because there are no laws and the you know it seems like what i've noticed is it seems like if any you know if any landowner you know happens to shoot a deer dog which unfortunately that happens just I don't know that that's tough too. I wouldn't shoot a dog myself at all, but I know some people have different opinions on it. Um, but I don't know it, it. It's just frustrating. Like you said, you put so much time and effort, money into things, you would just like it to, you know, be respected. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Hundred percent. Um, it got me thinking. Mentioned dogs. Um. Do y'all have a lot of well, side note? I say real quick, it's just the only reason why that I've mentioned dog hunting is always like no problem with it. It's just it seems like over the last couple of years, I just keep noticing more and more issues with it, like more and more people having problems with it. I don't know if it's uh, because people in the south are becoming less tolerant of it or yeah. if you know the the migration of people from other areas have come here who aren't used to dog hunting, you know, who aren't used to it and they're getting fed up quicker. I'm not sure uh, what that dynamic is going on, but it's just something I've noticed over the years, which I know you can't have a working relationship with it, but I think a lot of people just don't want it at all, but I don't know. Yeah. It's tough. We, there was an instance in our, in our area, um, that we, you know, heard about. And it was, um, because in, in, in South Carolina, there's very little to no rules and regs. So there was a property where there was an, there was an absentee owner, um, you know, meaning that the, the, the property owner didn't, you know, didn't live on the track. I think it was about 50 or so acres. It was less than a hundred acres. And, mm-hmm. um, the owner gave, you know, she, the owner didn't live there, didn't hunt there. And somehow she uh, connected or, uh, you know, a dog hunting club, uh, you know, uh, 
got permission to hunt it. I, I, I say club. I'm not really sure. It, it was a group of dog hunters. A group and, of people. And the, the, the track was only like 40 or 50 acres, well under 100. And they came in with like 20-something dogs. And the dogs were just all over the place. And um, a yeah. lot of neighbors were calling each other and trying to figure out what the heck was going on. And they ended up calling the DNR. And DNR came and talked to them. And it's, it's kind of one of those things where, like, they didn't violate – you know, they didn't break any laws, but, you know, the, the DNR agent, you know, talked to him was like, Hey, you know, listen, I mean, you know, what y'all are doing is technically legal, but it's not really in the right, uh, you know, it's just, I mean, releasing that many dogs on that small property isn't really ideal. And so, you know, what I've noticed a lot of times is, you know, the dogs, they just, you know, will just blast through, uh, you know, the neighbor's property and then they'll pick them up on the next paved road. So it's, you know, it's my grandfather um, did mostly dog hunting uh, in Georgia. And so, I mean, it, it, it's, and I've, and I've been on some and done some, and I think there's, there's ways to do it that can be effective, especially if, you know, someone's got Absolutely. a, a a larger piece of property and they're trying to thin some deer out. And then there's ways where people just, they release the dogs and they know that they're going to pick them up on the next paved road. And there's kind of, mm-hmm. they don't really care what properties they go through. Um, you know, so. Well, that's um, definitely from the lack of, that's definitely from the lack of you know, regulation and anything like that. Which, yeah. in my, I mean, I don't know if it's going to happen or not, but especially just from my you know, observation of seeing how many issues that keep arising over the years, I, I almost feel like, I mean, I hate to have more regulation. You know, we already have so much already, but, you know, I kind of feel like at some point there's got to be something, you know, to make both parties happy because you know, they can't keep having that many issues year over year, you know, problem after problem about stuff but yeah it's a tough topic especially like like i said i mean it it, the cultural aspect of thing it runs so deep and at the end of the day too it's definitely a social event because there's so many people and people have good times and you know at the end of the day you know a lot of places do it the right way they do it ethically and legally and there's absolutely no problem with it um i have no problem with it it's just like i said a few bad apples that do it I know, I, like you said, the 50-acre track dropping a bunch of dogs, uh, one of the bad bad hunts I went on was pretty much exactly that. It was literally like a highway on one side and a big square block of maybe like 25 to 30 acres, and they must have dropped like 10 packs of dogs on it. Mm, and yeah. for the next hour and a half, they were chasing dogs around other people's properties and had multiple landowners come who lived locally, and they started raising cane. And I don't know. It's just... It can be a mess. I don't know. I don't, I don't think hunting should be represented in a way that looks down on it, especially with how scrutinized it's, it's becoming, you know, the, the more positive outlook people can look at it. I think the better. Absolutely. Yeah. It's definitely something that, uh, you know, will be a topic, uh, in the Southeast, at least for a while. Um, We'll switch gears a little bit. Talk about the hunting season, upcoming hunting season. What what do you do? You have a preferred time of time of year to hunt. Um, do you like you know early season, trying to 
maybe get on a velvet buck or do you like, you know, pre-rut, rut? What, 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 what's your kind of favorite? Um, Man, I've gotten lazy. <laughs> to be honest, I know we've got all our velvet deer down here and I've, I've shot one or two velvet deer, but man is it tough whenever there's mosquitoes biting you you have five thermocells going you're you're wearing a tank top and crocs in the deer stand it's tough to want to hunt in that yeah. oh yeah <laughs> but i think my favorite time i mean i normally don't start getting excited uh really going until usually about usually about the first week of october when it's just starting to kind of cool off a little bit and then that first cold front is starting to you about to see it in like the two weeks uh forecast and that's when i started getting excited and it seems like every year like there's no question between the last two weeks of october through the first week of november i'm i'm game on like i'm ready to go those are kind of those like three to four weeks span when you have that first or i think it's either the first or the second big harvest moon in october usually it's right around the first real big cold snap um i've like I said, from my own experience, I, I've definitely noticed that that first really big cold front, which seems to come usually around the third week in October, uh, for me, I have noticed the biggest rutting activity. I mean, bucks are chasing. If, if you're going to kill a buck, it's going to be that first big cold front. Um, so yeah, that's kind of yeah. when I try to get in there. Yeah, there's, there's, definitely, there's definitely something – for sure about, um, you know, that, that first cold front and, you know, just the, the, that, that first kind of movement kind of trending in a, in a rut. Uh, it's, uh, it's definitely good, good time to get out there. Well, I know you need to get rolling. Let's start to wrap this up. Um, I, uh, um, I have an ending all of uh, my podcast with uh, asking my guests three questions. So we'll start off the first one. Do you have a, um, a favorite wildlife book or maybe a, you know, a media outlet or like a podcast or anything that you could recommend for someone? I mean, it could be, you know, uh, you know, any kind of, I mean, I've had people mention, you know, the Sand County Almanac or, you know, a food plot book or anything that you could recommend that you like. Uh, wildlife hunting related uh i mean i do a bunch of reading but most of the time it's it's a it's usually a bunch of studies and and articles online um one of the more impactful books that i have read is uh is one of craig harper's books i think it was the early successional and yeah. how to manage that i think that's on the qd i guess it's it's a qdma website i believe uh, but I've read that one, and at least in the native vegetation, that's kind of kind of where I go for any kind of, I guess, revamping on what I, I needed to remember for managing the natives. I don't know. For the most part, I'm, I do a lot of, like, online reading and websites, just kind of what comes up. I mean, I don't have anything specific, just kind of all over the place, but trying to gather it all into one spot. Yeah, yeah, that's... uh. Yeah, it's kind of similar to me. I mean, I, I, I read more articles and just as opposed to straight books. I, I that, uh, actually, I've got that book right in front of me here, Craig Harper's, uh, or at least 
it might be the one you're thinking about wildlife food plots and early successional plants. Yep. Um, yep, that's it. Uh, I mean, this is just a phenomenal book. In fact, uh, this will tell people how much of a nerd I am as far as deer. <laughs> I, um, I, I, I bought the book at uh, the QDMA Whitetail Weekend in 2020 and um, I actually had Craig Harper uh, sign it, uh, <laughs> sign the front. And um, <laughs> I, so that's kind of how much of a nerd I am. That's pretty getting, cool. Getting him to sign the book. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, that's what, I mean, I've had this conversation with, you know, a, a couple of times. I mean, I, that's what's changed so much in, you know, in our culture, in society with, you know, social media and, and really, you know, it was definitely, you know, a boom or an uptick when like, you know, smartphones came out. I mean, like I'm in real estate and, you know, smartphones and a lot of social media has only been around for like 10, like 10, 12 years. And so if like real estate, for instance, just to briefly talk, I mean, it used to be before smartphones um, and 10, 12 years ago, the real estate agent like had all the, had all the information. Like if you were looking to buy yeah. or sell a property, no matter what it was, residential, commercial investment, you called a real estate agent or you picked up like, you know, a print magazine, like a homes and land at a, at a gas station. But now with smartphones and Zillow and CoStar and LoopNet and LandWatch, you can get on, anybody can get on their phone and look up properties. They can see all the photos. So you don't really need the agent as much. And nowadays with as much, with as much content out there as far as hunting related, I mean, there's, if someone's really interested, I mean, there are in-depth, like not this podcast, but there are some in-depth podcasts, there's articles, and there's all kinds of just free content. Of course, some of it out there is just people regurgitating stuff that maybe, you know, I mean, like myself, maybe, for instance, but there's some professionals that are putting out free content that is just... Mm -hmm. I mean, it's insane what's out there. You've got um, you've got endless opportunity to learn right in your hand. And if you don't yeah. know, you know, how to do one thing or you don't know what a certain plant is, I mean, now you can take a picture of the plant and it tells you right there. I mean, and before you'd have to go, you'd have to have, you know, like your weed book or your plant book and then you'd have to find it or either you'd have to, you know, remember what it looked like in your head and then try and go back to a book a few days later and then try and find it. Now it's, now it's just like, oh, what's this? You take a picture and then boom, in five seconds, you know exactly what it is. And it's pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is. I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, uh, it's amazing what's out there. All right. The second question, what, what is your favorite wild game dish? What, what do you, was just kind of a go-to favorite, uh, well, yeah, oh, man, I would I would say that's tough because I've eaten a lot of stuff. But to be honest, we I cooked the other night. Uh, just uh, actually, you know what? I'm going to say two things. The first one is we did just a typical backstrap loin yeah. with a balsamic reduction and just plain old mashed potatoes and asparagus is classic as it gets. But it was so good, and if you do it, or if you do a loin the right way, it is it is so good, and you can't beat it. Um, and the reason why I say that there's going to be two things is the other thing which I started eating probably three years ago, which I don't kind of upset that I took this long to do it. But I started asking, as long as they didn't get blown up, I started asking the processor if I was cleaning the deer out, 
uh, I'd get the heart. Yeah. I'd get the heart out and then slice it real thin, put it, pan sear it, you know, put a little salt and pepper and maybe like, you know, whatever kind of seasoning you would want. And, you know, kind of pair it with anything else, uh, you know, sides or you know, vegetables, whatever. And that right there has been one of my favorite things. I mean, not only does it taste good, as long as you can get past it being a, an organ meat, it's also, you know, one of the most nutrient dense pieces of, of meat, organ meat, that you can possibly eat. It's so good for you. You know, it's, it's just hard to beat. Yeah, but there's... If, if you want to eat wild game, it's kind of hard to, to be eating a heart of the animal. Yeah. <laughs> Not I mean, to sound that's... too barbaric, but. <laughs> well, I mean, that's about as primal as it, you know, as it gets. Yeah. It, it, there's a lot of people I, I've, I have not prepared a heart myself. Um, I've had it before, but I haven't done it. But I, I know a lot of people just like yourself that just swear by it, grill it you know, maybe put it, you know, season it, grill it, maybe put it in a taco, but, um, a lot of people swear by it. Um, so that's, that, that's, uh, that's something I need. It's to, good. Yeah. That's, something I, 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 that's on my to-do list at some point, you know, <laughs> um, I will, I could suggest, uh, a little young doe is probably, probably the best. Yeah, that, that, that probably, you're probably right. That, that probably is one of the better ones. But, um, all right, the last question, what, what do you think? Uh, I mean, this is where obviously concentrating in the southeast. What, what's something you think is pretty important, not necessarily like the top, but what do you think is pretty important out there as far as a conservation uh, geared in the southeast that maybe should be on people's radars right now as far as maybe stuff they could do or – stuff you're seeing i mean you know i you know a lot of people uh you know i mean you know focus on deer and you know growing big giant bucks but you know at the end of the day it's um as you know being a land manager there's a lot more to it you know leaving the leaving the land leaving the wildlife better 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 than than you found us is there anything from your experience what you're seeing what you suggest that people maybe maybe pay attention to or or really know about as far as you know something a real conservation issue in the Southeast? Uh, I can, I can tell you from experience, it's the loss of land, to be honest, especially with the influx of people down here. I mean, land's being developed more now than I feel like it ever has. And yeah. the few animals that are here, you know, are getting condensed and, you know, the, the motor vehicle accident between you know, it's not just deer, but, you know, other animals, I mean, people are starting to push further and further into the, into the landscape. I mean, I think that's something that people are negating to realize because they just think that land is, you know, an infinite resource. You know, at some point, I feel like there's got to be a balance between, all right, we're not going to keep growing into this natural landscape that, you know, at some point, you know, if you take too much away from it, you know, it's going to be an imbalance if there's not already. And I guess that comes from just being on the coast for the last, you know, 10 years. The amount of explosion and loss of acreages of land and displacement of animals has been real. And I, at least that, I mean, I know I'm a little bit different because I get to go out to the country uh, with these plantations and stuff. But, it, you know, at some point, it doesn't really seem, it doesn't seem to matter how far away you are from it. At some point, it's going to end up being in your backyard. Um, 
Wow, that in terms of a macro scale, you know, that's kind of that's kind of my experience I've seen from it. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's you're you're absolutely right. Um, and uh, you know, interestingly, um, you're uh, in very good company because that's that's pretty much exactly what um, Dr. Mike Chamberlain said when I asked him that question. Um, mm-hmm. Just the just the loss of land development, fragmentation in the southeast. I mean, yes. That's pretty yep. much exactly what he said when asking that question. Yeah, it, it, it's uh, – and that's another thing uh, in, in, in the southeast that uh, if you're not from or have experience in the south, you know, if you're in the Midwest or out west, it just doesn't really – you might not get it. But, I mean, you know, we have mm-hmm. such a high – uh, density of hunters, development, urban sprawl. Um, I mean, I, I don't, I mean, like for instance, uh, around us, there's more and more, eh, slowly, but you know, uh, solar panel farms popping up and they, mm-hmm. they, they I mean, that's yeah. just, you know, a dead zone for any kind of wildlife. So it, it uh, it's definitely there. And I, I, um, I don't know if it was, well, it, it might've been Dr. Chamberlain was saying, but I mean, it's spot on. I mean, the future of, you know, wildlife conservation, especially talking about like turkeys, for instance, I mean, it's, it's private land. I mean, I know there's so many people that, you know, hunt public land, but I mean, when you look at the Southeast as being majority private land, I mean, the future of what we're talking about conservation, I mean, it lies in the hands of private landowners for the most part. Absolutely. Well, and then, you know, like you, you were talking earlier, you and Jason were talking about uh, the cost of land now, and it's extremely tempting, you know, as a private landowner, you know, if some development company comes and offers you some outrageous number to develop your land, you know, it's almost hard to say no to, you know, that X amount of money when it's more money than you've ever seen. So it's like, you know, do you, do you take the money and try and buy something somewhere else? Or do you just hang on to this land, you know, for wildlife? And it's just, I don't know, it's, it's a tough predicament on that, which I wouldn't blame somebody for, you know, for trying to get the money for it. But at the same point, you know, it's just, it's more of, you know, whatever your interests are and what do you value more by the end of the day? That's right. Yeah. It's just, it, it, it's, uh, it's definitely a challenge. Well, I can go gonna... as far too. I'll say I can go just as far as the improvement in farming practices, you know, back in the day, we used to have buffer zones. You know, we used to have edges on these fields and now tractors and farming has gotten so efficient. You know, now we don't have that. So there's less habitat there as well. I mean, they kind of go hand in hand. Yeah, I mean, it's it's something I think we're gonna deal with more. I mean, you know, I mean, our kids, I mean, the next generation is going to be dealing with it 10 times more than what we are. Well, I agree. Nick, I, I appreciate your time. This has been a lot of fun. Um, I'd like to, get, Absolutely. like to get you and Jason back on, talk about more of the stuff. I mean, it's, it's, uh, this was really, I mean, I, you know, I've only done a, a you know, a handful of these podcasts and I started off with, um, Dr. Marcus Lashley and Dr. Mike Chamberlain, to, um, talk about burning and wild turkeys, but, you know, I, one of the reasons why I wanted to start Southeast Whitetail was just to talk with people like you and Jason. I mean, you know, just real people out there doing 
doing the work, hunting, and, and just because, you know, uh, just get this material out there because there's so many people that are entrenched with, with what you and I are doing and they're doing the same thing. And I just, uh, I know yeah. there's, I know there's a lot of other content out there and I know I'm not the only person that has this idea, but the majority of content in the hunting space is not geared towards South. It's not geared yeah. towards, you know, well, a lot well, of especially what South just, Carolina, Georgia. Yeah. I mean, what we just talked about it, it because it's not, um, you know, it's not, you know, it's not uh, what's going to sell magazines. I mean, we're not talking about how many 180 inch plus bucks we're growing every year because that's not reality. Um, uh-huh. So I appreciate you coming on. I, I want to get y'all back on and talk about some of the stuff, especially kind of throughout throughout the year as we get closer in the hunting season. And um, yeah, man, it'd be a lot of fun. Yeah. And I, I at some point, I like, I want to get you to our property, um, take a look, kind of pick your brain. I mean, you know, I, um, you know, I mean, I enjoy what I'm doing. Absolutely. I mean, this is, you know, my, um, my kind of outlet, uh, as far as share my passion and my, my obsession has been deer hunting, all this stuff, but I mean, I, you know, I'm not a professional. I, I didn't go to school for any of this stuff. And, um, you know, so I, I, um, I'd love to get you on our property, pick your brain as far as what we're doing. You know, it's always, um, I so say you have to give me a call whenever you or somebody in the club kills a nice buck. Cause I, I carry my camera around everywhere I go. Um, I'm ready to take some pictures. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because you are quite the photographer. I know you, so you, so you, so you do, you have a photographer, like a, a photography business, right? Uh, it's just more of like a hobby. Gotcha. I mean, I, I do wildlife stuff, obviously, cause I, I, I live it every day and I yeah. enjoy it. I just, and also when I'm hunting, I'm doing it. Then on the side, like if, you know, friends or family or somebody who's friends of my friend or something needs like pictures, I'll go do it for them. And it's no big deal. It's just, you know, just something different. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I enjoy, uh, I've enjoyed following you to content. So yeah, I mean, anybody, um, out there, I would suggest you follow Nick. So where, where can people find you, Nick? Uh, really, I'm really on Instagram and Facebook. Um, I also, I take pictures for over and under, uh, the apparel line too. So you can probably see some of my pictures on there, but on Instagram, I'm at N underscore Pappas 11. And then Facebook is just Nick Pappas. Um, it's probably got a deer or a duck or, or me holding a fish in any of the pictures if you're looking for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, 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 I would employ everybody out there to employ everybody out there to um, follow Nick. I mean, he, he's, um, he's one of the better followers out there uh, in my opinion uh, for the South. I mean, he's out there grinding, doing the work, doing the habitat work, hunting, um, got some great content and you know what you're doing. Um, so it's uh I appreciate that. you coming on and I've, I've had uh, several people tell me that I need to have a sign off because sometimes I have something to say at the end and, and uh, that, that, that last one I recorded, I just kind of drew a blank, but. I need to pre-record something so you can just hit a button that goes. <laughs> yeah, I know. I need to, yeah, I don't have a sign off. I don't have a, I don't even have um, uh, like intro music. So maybe, maybe, um, before I put this one out there, I'll get some music to put on. I don't know. I just, uh, 
I kind of look at it as I was, fancy. Yeah, I'm just trying to record. I, you know, I'm focusing on content, you know, get some good people on and talk about some real stuff. Um, mm -hmm. So, Understandable. well, I appreciate it, Nick. Um, thanks for the time. And yeah, I, I would definitely like to have y'all back on um, kind of throughout the year if you want to talk about what you're doing, what you're seeing. Um, and yeah, that, uh, that'd be great. Just uh, shoot me a text or give me a call and uh, we can try and get something lined up. Well, I appreciate it. Good luck out there spraying. Hopefully the, the wind will stay low for you. And I mean, I, I hope we get some rain. Cause I mean, like last it. year, we, we got behind the eight ball last year because it was like, if I have it right, it was like, it was very, it was very wet the early, like the first quarter last year. And it was so wet that we couldn't burn a lot of places. And then all of a sudden it just got dry and, and a lot of our land will just become rock hard. And then, it, and then it got to the point where it was too dry to plant. And we were planting some food plots going in June. It just got, it, it got away from us. So, but it looks like they're calling for rain. I think maybe this weekend or maybe, maybe early next week for a couple of days. So I think they're calling Saturday through Tuesday and we need it. I know I've, I've kept a track and we, at least in Beaufort, we've only had about two and a half inches since the middle of March. And it's been, it's been rough. Yeah. That, that's, that's, uh, yeah. I mean, that's one of the, you know, I mean, you, you put so much time and money and, you know, in, 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 in food plots and then money, you know, especially this year. Yeah. And then it just comes down to rain. I mean, you know, a lot of it of course comes down to knowledge and doing it the right way, but then you're just, you're just left to, you know, what, what's going to happen as far as the rain. So it's, uh, it's definitely a lot, you know, so well, Nick, I appreciate your time. Um, yes, sir. Thanks for coming on and, um, let's do this again. Sounds good. Let me know. All right. I appreciate everybody listening. And uh, yeah, at some point I'll, I'll come up with a, with a sign off. So thanks for listening and um, um, y'all get out there and do some habitat work. All right.